Double Take is an extension of the award-winning movie review show Cinema Classics, which airs Thursdays at 8.01 p.m. on WCPE 90.5 FM, Columbus, Ohio. Hosted by John DeSando, this podcast features additional content and discussion with guests. I'm John DeSando. And I'm KG Klein. And this is Double Take. And one thing I'm be sure of with our WCBE audience is our audience is fans of Miyazaki. Just the name alone is, there's a reverence to it. I mean, this is possibly the greatest living director today. Not since the passing of Stanley Kubrick has there been a director who has been so admired and so influential in cinema. And we're talking the king of anime. The king of anime. Um, and, and even I hesitate to, to use the word anime with him because he really is a genre unto himself. Comparing him to anime is like uh, <laughs> comparing 2001 to Flash Gordon. However, for our audience, uh, we, we can call it anime and they'll know what we're talking they about. They certainly will. And if we say Miyazaki, I suspect they're right. going to know what we're talking All about. Right, so too. we're talking about a very simple a title. Brand, a brand new film by Miyazaki, our first one in 10 years, the boy and the heron. Right. So how much? How much simpler can it be? You have a boy. You have a heron. Oh, oh. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> no, no. This is one of Miyazaki's most challenging works. Yeah. Uh, for audiences who are thinking they're going to go in and see another Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle. Right, oh right. no, no, oh. that is not this movie. This is a a deeply personal film by Miyazaki, and it's almost semi autobiographical. So let's step back and talk a little bit about what the movie's story is. <laughs> well, Ken, I think I have a, a, a clue. Something that will help somebody like me, who doesn't know Miyazaki as well as you do, and goes in expecting that to be a sweet little allegory, and it's not, would say a key to unlocking some of the, uh, and you, you kind of already hinted at it being semi-autobiographical. Uh, let's just say the key here is that he has retired for seven times already, and this is the eighth <laughs> time that this director has retired. So much of what he's doing in this film is about himself, his art, and his mortality. Is reflections it- upon his life, reflections upon his youth, and then also how you view those things from the point of view of an 85-year-old man. Mm-hmm. And so this is a much more challenging and I think much more confusing to me film in a lot of ways than any of his previous films. It looks easy. The boy has lost his mother in a fire. The boy is 11 years old and he sees his mother uh, die in the, in the Tokyo firestorm of 1944. And it's important to know this film opens during World War II. Uh, his mother perishes at the tail end. At the tail end of World yeah. War II, his mother perishes in the Tokyo firestorm. Um, the father relocates, and many of Miyazaki's movies start with a journey, and this one does. After the passing of his mother, his father relocates to the countryside, um, just like in My Neighbor Totoro, or just like in Spirited Away. But here, it's a much more troubled thing. And now, and and the complicated nature of the dad is. He's a, a munitions manufacturer. He's manufacturing for uh, J- a Japanese yeah. fighter planes, and he marries his sister-in-law. He marries his sister-in-law. Which may not be in uh, an Asian culture, 
that as shocking as it would be for us. Mm-hmm. And she looks very much like... Confusingly. Very much like her sister, uh, the, the boy's Boy, mother. You got that. And, uh, and this sets up a very, very troubling time for the boy. Now, the, 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 the whole period here where we're at the new house, at the factory, the boy is, trying to, is going to a new school... And this is what is, is Miyazaki's reflecting upon his own life. He, of course, was born during World War II. The, the, the imprint of World War II is very much upon him. Um, he's dealt with World War II before, Grave of the Fireflies, uh, and that is probably the film of his as most similar to The Boy and the Heron. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first hour is slow. There's no getting around that. The the magic of the film, the fantasy elements of the film, don't really start until an hour into the movie. Right, and I don't think you get his meta view of his life and his art until that second part. I would agree with that. I think the first hour could have been trimmed down to about 20 minutes. <laughs> we could have gotten into the fantasy much more quickly. Um, I think it was upon Miyazaki to want to show this element of his life and his reflections upon it. Now, the Japanese title for this movie is How Do You Live? And Ah, that is based on the book. It's not adapted from the book, but there was a book that was very important to Miyazaki called How Do You Live? Um, And here he's exploring the how does this 12-year-old boy live following the death of his mother during wartime and with a brand-new stepmother and all of this happening to him and trying to adjust. Yeah, and it, in other words, it, it it works for him personally, and it works for the population in general, humanity in general. How, how with these wars, with this corruption, uh, with a heron who actually turns out to be some kind of an ogre. <laughs> the, uh, heron, the heron shows up and begins <laughs> talking to him and convinces him that the heron is trying to take him to his mother, who is still alive. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he's a trickster. He's a trickster. And, and, and uh, it's, it's so good because it, it, where you see where this 85-year-old artist is and questioning everything he's done and everything the world has done. And the, the title that you bring up so well, the original title, How Do We Live?, is so appropriate. And how does an 85-year-old man come to terms with how he's lived, how he's depicted... And this is no easy task for a genius. It's no easy task for him. And I think it was no easy task, of course, for the the, the people living in Japan post-World War II. Yeah. And he is bringing us into this. There was another film that just came out a week ago called Godzilla Minus One. Mm. And these two films would make a great double feature because they both deal with the collective post-traumatic uh, experiences of Japan, Japanese citizens as a whole in the years immediately following World War II. I may have to go see that. Keith and Lulu loved it. It as is well. absolutely wonderful. It's it, you shouldn't even treat it as a Godzilla movie. Yes. It's much more impressive as a Japan post World War II film Good. that happens to have Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. But this film, so we're an hour in, and the heron has led the boy to a magical tower that is a portal. And as he enters, he's taken into what, to me, resembles an Oedipus story. He's going to the Greek underworld to find his mother. Hmm, hmm, hmm. And and don't you think that tower serves so well as the edifice he's built in his life, his art, uh, and it goes right up to the top? 
Well, I was pretty confused at this point, so I'll, I'm, I'm grasping for straws. I'll take that and run with it. Because when, uh, when that doesn't work out well, uh, it's a great metaphor for how disappointed he is in the life that he's trying to come to terms with. This guy's a freaking genius. He, he is, and he is amazing, questioning himself. He, he, is, he is questioning. He, he's exploring the ideas of the relationships with his mother, the relationships with his father, yes. um, and the magical th- fantasies that he has surrounded himself with. Miyazaki believes that fantasy is an integral part of one's life. And your fantasy life, your dreams, your your the things that you you imagine are just as important as the real life experiences that you have. Mm-hmm. And this is what the second half of the film really delves into. And we just had a call from Miyazaki. He says you guys have done the best job of anybody for that first hour of his film. <laughs> that was a good translation, John. <laughs> so Miyazaki. Probably the most influential director alive today. Without Miyazaki, we would not have... Well, now, Ken. I mean, really. I, I, you don't I, think Steven absol- Spielberg is? No, no. <laughs> I, Miyazaki has been influential in the nature of storytelling. Two people like Spielberg. Spielberg loves Miyazaki, mm-hmm. and even more so to the Disney. Did, when, when, once John Lasseter discovered Miyazaki... He began integrating Miyazaki's storytelling style into the Disney movies. And without Miyazaki, we would not have had films like Brave, Frozen, and Encanto. The films that don't have villains, the films that the conflict is just the very nature of personalities and people trying to to relate and interrelate. That all can go back to Miyazaki. So that second hour, Ken, let's let's kind of deconstruct that. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, what's going on with that? I mean, we have we have like uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> well, we have the we have the, the 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 old ladies who are the caretakers of his house, yes. and one of them then shows up in a younger form once we get to the underworld. And I don't know what else to call it, so I'm just going to call it the underworld. I think that's good. Yeah. Um, it is the place where the children who have yet to be born exist as something called Wattawallas. There are these wonderful little bulbous white blobs with happy little They're faces. They're like fish who fly, and then you have the pelicans coming yeah. just to scoop them up, these little souls. The Walla Wallas are reminiscent of the Kodomo <laughs> from, Howl's, from uh, um, Princess Mononoke or the, the, the dust sprites from uh, Spirited Away. But these are more... They're more fascinating because they are supposed to be unborn children who are trying to ascend into uh, the to our world yeah. to be born. Yeah. Um, but however, there are pelicans that have entered the underworld, and just as they're these these Walla Walla are making their ascent into the into the sky, the pelicans began sweeping down, and it's a mass feeding frenzy. It's almost like the 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 loggerhead turtles as the young are trying to make their way to the ocean, and they have a short time. But meanwhile, the the birds are all coming in to try to scoop them up. And you can see where uh, Miyazaki is doing again his meta business because that's all part of the the catastrophe of World War II of the atomic bomb uh, we're talking about the inability of even of new souls to be born yeah when you consider yeah. the number of men for instance who are killed who are lost in, in yeah, World War II uh, then you're talking about souls who are lost so it's really well, and this is why he's such a genius 
because of course it it applies. You know, you, you had this this fantasy of this kid going into this building, which I think is a building of what of dreams. Uh, a building. Well, it descended from the sky long time ago, so it's yeah. almost a Lovecraftian portal. <laughs> that element of the story reminds me very much <laughs> of the Lovecraft stories. Um, <laughs> Where there's the you know this this other world that you have to be careful because if you if you enter you're going to get trapped in it, yeah. Um, and there's and as I said before, there's an element of Greek tragedy to this. There's the the Oedipus story going unfolding here as well. And what way are you are you talking about? Well, he is? goes to, into the underworld to find his mother and then bring her back to his world, believing that she is still alive in the underworld. And as it turns out, he does discover his mother. But he discovers a very young version of his mother who has not yet entered the world that he knows, that he remembers. So as we see the, the pelican become the old man, I don't know how that really works, except that, the, you know, I mean, not the pelican, but of course, the heron. The heron. The, the, heron, the heron becoming this, this the, old man, this, well... This cranky old man. Well, the the, the cranky old man is is uh, the the Copernicus character of the story, and and Miyazaki is a huge fan of Copernicus, so we see throughout the second hour things that Miyazaki is fascinated with being introduced into this as an element, um, and he the the old man is the the keeper of the of the underworld. He's the one that's keeping the portal going. Mm-hmm. He's the one holding all of this together, and he does so on a daily basis by balancing these stones. And how he balances the stones is how well this this world is balanced. But as he's becoming old and frail, he is now having a harder and harder time balancing the stones and keeping the world going. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why he needs the young boy to come in to take over because he sees in him a, a young person who has the magic, the spirit to keep this world going. But now Miyazaki sees himself in this conflict. Does he rectify himself to, to a, a life of living a mundane life or does he continue to aspire to his fantasies and become the, the illustrator, the, 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 the storyteller that he wants to be. Yeah, and I, I think the only way he comes to terms with it is that you have to have both worlds. You have to have the real world, which would be World War II, and you have to have the fantasy world, which is this castle. And we have to be careful not to give anything away of the ending. Uh, right, um, yeah. But yes, and, and he does make a choice. He does decide one or the other. Yeah, but I have to ask you, and he might spoil a bit, mm-hmm. The uh, one of the five, one of the scenes in which they go through doors. Two of them go through doors. Yes, different yeah, doors. Yeah. How do you look at that? Well, it's Miyazaki has made his decision. He's decided that he wants to be the storyteller. He wants to be the fantasist. Uh-huh. Um, and so he enters his door to go back to the real world, having made that decision. Right. right. Now the girl, on the other hand, uh, is his mother. That's right. But this is his mother as a as a ten year old, so she has to enter the portal to take herself back to a different time period, where she is the correct age, and then will eventually grow up to become his mother. Ah, so he gets to meet his mother as a young child, and mm-hmm. other movies have explored this too. It's always I thought a fascinating uh, concept when you meet your parent. Back to the Future, for instance, did this, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and he sees his mother. In a different light, and he actually has that last, period, last time with his mother, 
before they're separated again. So how do you look at the, the final sequence and um, in, in, in terms of metaphor? Well, with a certain amount of confusion. Um, Miyazaki does not do a very good job of explaining himself in this film. Yeah. He doesn't and seem to want to. He doesn't, he doesn't have to. He's, <laughs> know, he he knows, I mean, when this movie was released in the summer in Japan, there wasn't even an advertising campaign. Right. It they just nothing, suddenly appeared in theaters anywhere. because he knows his audience will find it. Word of mouth it's will great. bring as it's many great. people into the theaters to see this movie as if they had blasted it everywhere. And he knows that he is he he has an audience that are very devoted to him, both in Japan and worldwide, and they will find him and they will find this film, and he's allowing us to decide for ourselves how do we interpret this. Now he said that this is not necessarily his last movie. Oh, I did. But he is eighty-five years old. That. He's a heavy smoker, and um, and he's already disbanded his studio once before after filming uh, yes. The Wind and Rises, the House of Ghibli. Uh, Ghibli, House Ghibli. of Ghibli. Ghibli, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it, Ghibli, Ghibli. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Um, and uh, after he did The Wind Rises in 2013, he shut down his animation studio, yes. something that he's considered the Walt Disney of uh, Japan. But, of course, Walt Disney would never have dreamed of shutting down his studio after his own passing. Right. But Miyazaki did because Miyazaki really did not see his animators as having the vision that he had, unlike Walt, who aspired to teach and, and, and perpetuate okay, uh, yeah. his, his animation studio after he was gone. So we have probably introduced some of our audience to Miyazaki, and for that we can receive accolades, I think. that This is, this is one of the things I always hope for cinema classics. Every person should be introduced to Miyazaki. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and for cinephiles, of which we have many, and for, as you pointed out, our audience, which is 75% college-educated, they are ready for the challenges of Miyazaki. So if, you're, um, if, you're just, uh, if you buy into just simply superficial uh, cinema, then don't bother. But if you're interested in getting into a deeper dis- uh, discussion and understanding of what a true genius can do, then try Miyazaki, and you have given them the well, recipe for Well, his that. film, Spirited Away in my opinion, is the best animated movie ever made. Okay. And I'll even go further and say, I think it's one of the ten best movies ever made, period. Okay. So you should find Miyazaki simply because you're going to see some of the greatest animation in history, some of the most beautiful storytelling in history, and I hope you find it while you still have children who are five, seven, eight. Start them with My Neighbor Totoro. Work them up through Kiki's Delivery Service and then into Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, Laputa, Castle in the Sky, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, and then eventually end up with Grave of the Firefly and The Boy and the Heron. And don't expect Disney-like animation or Toy Story type. Disney would love to be able to animate like this. Now, it's a different look, isn't it? It's a much more detailed look, and it's a much more attention to, to, to little minute things that 
Disney would never pay attention background to. Background is just the always background. full. Little drops of water hitting the surface of a pond. Right. Little details in the background that ultimately mean nothing, but somebody thought of them and put them oh, yeah. in. Each one, each frame is a painting. I, when, when John Lasseter commented the first time he saw Kiki's delivery service, yeah. he looked and realized how far Disney had to go <laughs> to become the animation that he was seeing before his own eyes. Yeah. And they never will. They never will achieve the level of detail and the level of beauty and art that is typified by Miyazaki. And it is not three-dimensional. It is not three It never intended to be. No, I know it. They're it's not really going, a flat surface. Yeah. It's a painting. Yeah. Each one is a painting. Each one looks very much like a classic Japanese artwork. The great block artwork prints of the early 20th century just come to life. Mm-hmm. The colors are spectacular. I mean, I know several people who have had uh, Miyazaki characters tattooed on them. <laughs> I would not tattoo anybody from the boy and the heron yes. upon anyone, but it, I have encountered many Totoros and and uh, sp- dust sprites on tattoos, and there is a reason for that. It's because this is art. Yes, come come join a select crew of eccentrics who love his film, <laughs> and now we're trying to get just regular people. Interested and in children different. and children. Yeah. He wrote these movies for children, and I raised my son on Miyazaki, and I hope other people out there who are listening to this are inspired to do the same. Introduce them to Miyazaki when they're young. Mm-hmm. KG Klein, let me take some credit for asking you to be my co-host because you know more about Miyazaki than anybody I know, and you're enthusiastic about it, and for good reason. Because he's brilliant, but he's not easy. This movie is not easy. (laughs) 